the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Hello everyone, welcome back once again to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have with me Dr. Jenny Johnston. Uh, she's a general practitioner and clinical reader for the School of Medicine, Dentistry, and Biomedical Sciences at Queen's University, Belfast. Welcome, Jenny. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Oh, thanks very much for asking me, Sarah. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much. Well, let's just start the same way that I usually start with people, because I, as I was mentioning to you, we like to know a little bit more about the person behind the research. And the best place to start is the growing up years. Like, who was Jenny growing up? What was she curious about? What was the main influences? Um, yeah, if you can tell us a few stories about it, it would be great. Okay. Um, okay, where to start? Um, well, I grew up on the outskirts of Belfast, Northern Ireland, um, in the 80s and 90s. So uh, if you've seen Dairy Girls, you'll probably know what that was like. <laughs> so at the time... Um, I would say the trouble seemed very distant. Um, my life was in a bit of a bubble, really, compared to some others. But um, I guess that was the backdrop to really all of us um, growing up at that time in this place. Um, and I was a bookish child. Um, I, I loved to read. Um, so starting with uh, a lot of feminist heroines, the likes of um, Anne of Green Gables, Jane Eyre, that kind of thing. <laughs> so um, getting in there early. And uh, and I wasn't from a family of doctors, so I'm the first doctor in my family. And my husband, who's also a doctor, is the first um, in his. So um, and for, I'm from a family where my grandparents were working class tradespeople from um, East Belfast. And then um, my parents were first generation university graduates as a, a result of um, I guess social development and grants in, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, um, and then uh, for a while I dithered when I was at school. I was at a grammar school, which meant that um, they loved people to go into medicine or law. And I thought, oh, which will I go for? Um, but had actually zero interest or knowledge of law, whereas I was very drawn to the vocational idea of helping people. So, um, and generally I, I do still like people even after years and years of practicing. So I'd say that was a real driving force and, and I went into medicine. Um, and then um, where I was lucky enough to meet my husband actually on the first day, although it was like another five years before we started to go out. So, oh. um, <laughs> And uh, and then I became a GP. I am, um, and at, at the same time as I was doing my GP training, I did an MPhil, so a research masters, um, and then that kind of gave me the bug. So that was a an educational project because that was what my supervisor was interested in, 
And then I got a teaching job at the uni, did a PhD under the supervision of Jerry Gormley, who you've had on your programme. Um, I was his first PhD student um, back in about 2012, about 10 years ago now. And um, and yeah, here I am still. <laughs> so um, so I, I practice. I'm a practicing GP half the time. Um, in some very deprived areas of Belfast, where there's still a lot of um, traumatic legacy from the troubles and socioeconomic deprivation. And then I, I research and teach and do all the other things that we do as academics in the other half of my week. And that, I would say, is very influenced by my clinical work. So, so here I am. <laughs> Perfect. So out of pure curiosity, when you were transitioning from your GP to be medical education, what was the pivotal moment or what drove you into medical education, particularly rather than going into clinical research? Yeah, um, it's so interesting that because um, I guess I thought of myself primarily as a clinician. Um, and I remember saying that to my supervisor on my MPhil, I very nearly didn't apply for the joint job. Um, I said, um, you know, I said, oh, I, I think I'm primarily a clinician. I don't think I can do this. And then he was very good at kind of mentoring me. And, and I guess the way that I would put that now um, with my knowledge of sociocultural theory is that I would say um, that I hadn't figured myself, I guess, as a researcher. Um, to me, researchers were different people. Uh, they, liked, <laughs> um, they liked lab work, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and although I do like a bit of numbers, really, the joy of my research has always been in, in words and in talk and in what people do and in how relationships make things happen. So um, so I, I didn't initially see myself as a researcher. Um, and it took a while then, um, as I say, my first supervisor was was very pivotal in saying, no, I mean, you can do this, you know, come come on ahead. Um, he was a um, quantitative um, public health type researcher, but he had a strong interest in education. And then um, after a while, I just read a lot of stuff, realized that I was a, a definite constructionist, which explained a lot for me in terms of um, square pegs and round holes <laughs> and, um, and, and really became more confident in myself and in my identity um, as a kind of a critical researcher, really. Um, or a critical constructionist, if you like. So I, I would say that that was the, the pivotal moment where it was either you go and you be a doctor full time or um, or else you go and, and try to do some research. And then the second pivotal moment came when I started my PhD, because at that stage, I really needed to decide, will it be majority clinical or majority academic? Which one is going to get my most attention, really? So. Um, so although I do do half and half now, I have made a significant commitment, obviously, to the to the academic side of my life. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I go to clinical work for a bit of a rest. <laughs> okay. So, what about Jerry? Like, when did you meet him? How did you actually decide to become his first PhD student? But yeah, what so actually interested you about what he did? So, Jerry. Back in the day, he was actually a partner in the practice. He was just leaving his partnership in the practice I trained and he was just leaving his partnership um, to become a senior lecturer. So we worked in the same department. Um, and obviously he was interested in education. We both taught, he, he at that time ran undergraduate um, general practice teaching and I taught on that course. Um, 
Um, and we knew that we both were interested in, in research. And then I thought, oh, well, you know, if I want to get a substantive post, I'd better go and get a PhD. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and uh, I went into his office one day and said, you know, would you fancy supervising this? So, so that's how that came about. Um, and he's always been um, a great friend and mentor, really. So I'm, I'm very grateful to him. <laughs> Um, I would say at that time, he's he's now a professor of simulation, of course, but at that time he had a, a lot of, um, still does, have a lot of academic interests. So um, he encouraged me with my PhD, which was much more about workplace learning and about um, sociocultural influences on GPs as they're going through hospital training. So very different from, from the kind of work that he does at the minute. Right. So I noticed that... Um... I would, I would like to know a little bit about the environment you work in because you seem to have a pretty tight collaboration that becomes friendship, not only with Jerry, but also with Ellen, right? And other yes. people. Like, what is it about the environment that makes you so tight? Yeah, so yes, so uh, yes, shout out to my other good friend and collaborator, Dr. Helen Reid, um, who's who's um, a lecturer at Queen's. Um, so yeah, what makes us so tight, I guess, um, we have some things in common. So we all are GPs. Um, we're all educationalists, which is unusual, actually. So although a lot of people work in education, they're not educationalists as such. They're not interested in the theory and practice of education so much as teaching delivery, which is fine, of course. Um, and, and I guess that we have been through our ups and downs together, really, as a group. And we have enough mutual shared interest in a, a kind of critical perspective in moving things forward. Um, and uh, well, nowadays I would place it in terms of frere, you know, uh, critical pedagogy, the idea that education is a vehicle for change, particularly in healthcare. Um, and I, th I think we have those shared values and that that makes us tight, you know, and also the fact that we, we are a, a smallish group, you know, on the global stage, we've had a lot of success, but we are a small group um, and we we have each other's backs which is really really nice so um so yes I'm very very grateful for my colleagues that's nice every time we went to conferences we we talked about you as a group not as <laughs> yes. and that's what drives my my thought into that's, that's actually pretty interesting you mentioned um critical theory and I was curious to know when I was reading your biography there's something about your fascination for philosophy of science and, read, and readings like that and challenging simplicity. What drove you there? Like you, you had a very practical training in your GP, but this is a very theoretical component. What, how did you get there? Yes. Well, I think, I mean, I think a couple of things. <clears throat> I mean, I think although I'm a doctor and I hope I do a good job of being a doctor, I've never been the try, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the traditionally scientific doctor. You know, I did do my science A levels, but I wouldn't say that science is my first love. Um, I've always been much more interested in the arts and humanities side of things. And what drew me to medicine was that it was an applied science rather than a pure science and that it was really about helping people. So it was that vocational drive rather than a pure scientific drive. Um, and so when I was doing my science A-levels, I also did a French A-level, um, which opened the door to reading literature. So things like uh, Francois Mauriac, um, some of the existentialists, um, 
and really drew me into philosophy and interesting aspects of life. And then, as I said, when I discovered later on research paradigms, um, I realized that there was a place where I fit a little bit better because I don't feel that I ever took on um, the kind of traditional Cartesian dualist view of medicine. And I think um, any GP who has worked in a deprived area or family doctor, as you guys have in Canada, um, will be very well aware that mind, mind and body uh, are extremely tightly enmeshed, <laughs> you know. Um, but I guess a lot of doctors maybe don't know that. And we're not, we certainly don't teach that. You know, we teach this kind of mechanistic model of medicine. Um, and then where we do teach things like communication or consultation, it's very separate you know um whereas real life is not like that real life is much more gray much more messy um as you'd probably have read in like every single paper <laughs> that I've ever written um I, I end up saying that you know um and that we have to be very careful in how we are teaching our students because we are teaching them this very sanitized view of medicine so so yes that that's how come <laughs> I'm interested in that and then I am I would say that I'm a feminist as well of course um as part of my critical theory um background but that I wouldn't say that feminist theory is my strongest aspect but it's certainly something that I'm very interested in in learning more about um, and at the minute the one that I have on the desk in front of me is is bell hooks so teaching to transgress okay. so this, this is next on the reading list <laughs> oh, beautiful <laughs> so you mentioned also that you're using medical education to enact social change but you also mentioned that your practice is in very deprived areas um, where you live. Is there a connection there or what was the trigger for you to get into the social change arena? I think there there absolutely is a connection there. Um, I think, you know, you, you asked me about my family background and I, I have, I'm very lucky to have two very liberal parents, I guess, who, um, you know, my, my father was involved in adult education in the health service. That was his job. My mum was a social worker who worked in some of the most difficult places in Belfast in the 70s, in the height of the troubles. And so there, there is always that quite vocational drive in our households. Um, and, and that's the background. And then um, I think when you're working and you see what people are contending with, um, and, you know, I think while that can dampen your idealism a lot about what can be achieved, you realize that if you are just getting through, if someone is getting through the week <laughs> because they've come to see you, then that's a big success, you know. So, um, and medicine being overwhelmingly very privileged right. still, you know, it, it is something that I think many of our students will not have experienced how other people do live Um and die because in the likes of North and West Belfast, which saw some of the worst of the violence, for example, there's a huge increase in suicide rates in younger men um, and the life expectancy is, is much, much lower. And you, you see the same in other kind of industrial cities with the likes of, of Glasgow, I believe as well. So, um, so, so yes, I mean, these issues are very widespread and yet sometimes we don't do a very good job of teaching it. So yeah, the two things are very linked in, in my head um, about how we can best help our patients and about, you know, balance idea of the doctor as a drug um, and also the more structural aspects of teaching and learning, like what I embody as a mentor um, or what they're learning out on the wards uh -huh. um, that will enable them to be doctors 
sectors that will best serve the populations that they're situated in. Right. Based on your personal experience, it's great that you shared with us that you had that experience early on with your parents, through your parents, basically. How did you do that with your trainees or your students? Is there anything different that you have them experience for them to realize that reality? Yeah, I think so. I think that there's two things. One is the the people that I'm, I, I guess you're talking about the teaching part of my role. And I yeah. guess one is my face-to-face teaching as a an educator in the university. And the other is when we have students in the practice, hosted in the practice, and then I see them as like one of the doctors. So, um, but in both cases, it, it is really coming back to that idea of critical consciousness. So it's, it's eye-opening, you know, and it's, it's reflexivity. And it's learning not to treat people as others. So, so many times you'll hear people spoken of in very kind of dismissive terms, very cold terms. And I, I see it all the time when I'm doing OSCEs, you know, so a 55 year old male presents with chest pain, blah, 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 blah. It's like, so what you mean is Mrs. Brown, who came in to see us today, she's 55, she had her birthday last week, you know, she lives with her family. Um, she's having some trouble with her son at the moment or whatever, you know. Um, but this very cold clinical kind of genre of communication, um, you know, this is what we're teaching and this is what our students are learning. So so I try to humanize it for them, I guess. And um, my guess our patients are very good <laughs> at helping with that, but also just in terms of histories, in terms of how they talk, getting them to question that because most of them have never thought differently because they think this is how you have to behave, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, to say, well, actually, there is an alternative. You know, you do not have to think like that. You can you can see this person in their many levels of context and you can see them as an equal um, mm-hmm. and treat them as an equal. Um, and and that's OK to do that. You know, um, it's OK. And so. So, yes, I think um, my patients have been wonderful, really, at engaging in that um, in terms of, of clinical practice and then. Um, also in terms of the work that we do with educating our GP. So um, I used to do that. Jerry did that main course and then I did it for a little while. And now Helen Reid, my colleague, um, is involved in that. And over that time, we've just evolved more and more critical consciousness, I think, as content of the course, really. So we try to practice what we preach <laughs> yeah, nice. in our research. How did you, how did you make uh, your medical education research talked? to your uh, practical life as a GP, besides that, like you're, you're incorporating that in your courses, I, I can see, but is yeah. there something else? Yeah, I think they're very dialogic for me, like they're absolutely in dialogue all the time, and, and um, I know that some people get into education to teach, and for me, education has always been primarily about the end product, which is patients, or dealing with patients, so when I am working with a student, my end product is not that they pass their exams, it's that they know how to manage patients. Um, So I think that that is really central to the way I work. And so when I am seeing patients all the time, I'm I'm constantly learning, you know, I'm I'm a GP of like 15 years experience, a doctor of nearly 20 years experience. But every day you learn, don't you? You know, every day you learn something new, um, something that makes you think. And so I, I try to apply that then to my academic work and then likewise you know things like theoretical perspectives interesting papers interesting talks that I've heard that I'm privileged to hear as an academic I can take those back in to my clinical practice you know so that can be helpful both ways 
Yeah. So if you were to think about uh, a very rewarding moment, because your topic is just so, it, it makes an impact, direct impact on people. What would you pick as a, as a rewarding moment that is, has been very memorable that had taught you a lot in your career? Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's a really difficult one. Are you thinking like an academic moment or a clinical moment or? You choose like whatever. It could be personal to whatever you want um, to share. I think from the clinical point of view, there are moments, if not most days, then most weeks which stick with you, you know, patients who stick with you. So um, people who change your frame of reference. So, you know, for example, people who may be asylum seekers. So I have in our practice um, in South Belfast, we have quite a large population of asylum seekers from places like Syria, um, people who've been through these massive conflicts and then, um, you, you know, they're coming to a place that's a post-conflict society, but probably to them, it seems more like any other bit of the UK, you know, do they realise that they're coming to this post-conflict society? I'm not sure they do. So there's this, you know, dialectic I suppose um, and then you as a doctor are in the middle of that so so consultations like those so I had a consultation like that two weeks ago um, just before I went on holiday with a man who was from Palestine um, and had really bad PTSD and I think that those change you they change you fundamentally and they make you think about what you're doing so um and, and I think they reinforce the vocational nature of what you're doing, you know, the importance of both sides of, of being a clinician, but also of trying to drive the thing forward a little bit um, in terms of the discipline. So um, I'd say from a clinical point of view all the time, <laughs> from an academic point of view, it was probably, uh, well, I finally, 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 after years and years, got my PhD published. So it's about to come out as a monograph. <laughs> So that's very significant because yeah. I sat on it for the longest time. So as I'm sure you know, you know, when you finish something like that and then you just cannot look at it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> so and and I'm really pleased with it. And I think in terms of like it's it's so it's about how GP trainees learn in particular settings, it's sociocultural using figured world theory. And mm -hmm. I think I and I hope that it will bring um, a theoretical stance um, to GP pedagogy, to how we learn and how we teach as GPs. So, and, and there is a lack of that specifically in primary care mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people still think that the place of excellence for medical education is the hospital. So I think we need to make a bigger deal out of who we are as GPs and what makes us unique, you know, um, which is that re relational care, um, complexity, uncertainty, and yeah. those things certainly feed into our pedagogy. So I'm quite proud of that. And it seems quite pivotal to be finally getting rid of it after all these years. <laughs> so. Well, that's co awesome. Congratulations on getting that done. Oh, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I was also wondering about your PhD students, or how do you call it, yes. Chinese. Yes. How have them changed the way you do your research? Because it's not only you giving to them, it's also them giving to you. Uh, yeah, that's been really interesting. And I'm very lucky that I, um, I lead a, a very passionate group of, of um, health professions, education researchers, and most of them are doctoral students. Some of them are doing MPhils. Um, and I think, for me, it's been very important to give support while allowing them to develop. And that I suppose that's a learned skill. I'm still learning how to do that, the two things at once. But um, what I have found is that um, 
people drive their research in different directions mm -hmm. and that I learned from that. So I have um, an MPhil student at the moment, um, Kelly, who's doing the same, the same program that I did as a GP trainee, and she's really interested in realism. So realism, not necessarily my thing, but I've learned so much about it from her, you know, and the value of it in terms of, you know, what works for who and what circumstances. So that's been very pragmatic learning. And then on the other side, you know, the likes of Annalisa Manka, who um, is a fantastic educationalist that I had the privilege of supervising. And, and her thesis is all about general practice education as critical pedagogy. So she has done a very complex case study around that. And there was so much for me to learn from that. Um, and I've been able to kind of co-author some, some works with her off the back of that that have been really, really important to me, I think. Um, um, so yeah, there's there's always something new. And then the, the most recent one, so is a, a woman called Alexandra, who is a teaching assistant downstairs from me in the building. So she works in biomedical sciences and she's doing her PhD um, looking at assessment. So familiar theme to me of deconstructing assessment, but um, she is looking at how anatomy teaching, which is very visual and very sensory, does not really fit with this new medical licensing exam that's coming in that's very top down. It's based on MCQs. Um, so the same old story of assessment not particularly fitting and then that's driving the pedagogy. So, but she is using institutional ethnography. So, which is very, very interesting. So I'm learning all the time. And uh, I just, in fact, I just heard today that Dorothy Smith had passed away last week. So that's a huge loss, isn't it? But she's, she was an amazing woman. Um, and I'm just, it's just so wonderful. So, so I would say that out of all the things I do, supervising is probably my favorite. <laughs> so um, I, I love supervising because you're always, it's a very generative exchange, isn't it? You're always learning something from other folk. Yeah. Oh, I love how you describe it. So it's an exchange that is gener generative. That's awesome. So in terms of your own research, uh, what are you working on? And what's your next curiosity before we transition into more like day-to-day -day questions? Yeah, I guess. Um, so I've had, I would have to say I've had a bit of a hiatus over, <laughs> over the pandemic. Um, not a hiatus as such, but I haven't produce as much work as I maybe would have liked to. Um, so I have some ideas that I have to follow through in terms of publications and translational type work, looking at different theoretical perspectives and um, pulling them into, so for example, um, Jerry's work with simulation, there's a great appetite for theory because it's not generally being massively used in the past. So um, bringing different perspectives to that. And then um, I am interested, my big interest going forward actually comes from my home role, which is as an, an adoptive parent. So, um, and that's about trauma-informed care. So if you're familiar with it, so the idea that um, a lot of people carry trauma with them. So like small T kind of relational trauma or big T trauma, like, you know, the war in Ukraine or um, mm -hmm. the troubles here. So, um, and they reckon, I think, that 60% or more of the population will, will have some form of trauma. And yet, where does that ever turn up in medical education? <laughs> and yeah. it, it really doesn't. So, I mean, in, in Canada, for example, obviously, there are um, the issues with First Nations lands. 
Um, I've seen some of your little your email signatures that say at the bottom um, about the lands that the buildings are on. Um, and I know you yourself are from Colombia, isn't that right? So, yes. So uh, I don't know a lot about Colombia, but um, I, I do know a little bit from Encanto and my daughter. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I know there's a lot of a lot of trauma in that population as well. So, but yet we don't address it. We don't look at how it can affect your healthcare in terms of very hard outcomes, like how long you live, um, or how well you live while you're alive, um, and also in terms of how we might be traumatizing or re-traumatizing our students or staff through our means of education. You know, so um, there is a huge amount there, a huge amount to be uncovered, and I think because it's been a mainly psychological domain. Um, and, and then it's only starting to peter into education, I think, generally, um, because, for example, my daughter's school is, is a trauma-informed school, but we tried several schools before we found that one. <laughs> so, um, and uh, we're very we're very delighted with it. But it is a newer way of thinking. And I think in terms of, of tertiary education, perhaps not so prevalent. And in medical education, we have a long way to go. So I'm hoping that we can get um, our PhD students on board to do a project wow. around that. And certainly I have a lot of ideas for um, scholarly writing and maybe some workshops. So so that's my, my big thing at the moment. Um, I am lucky enough to know Martina Kelly, who is, as you know, from Calgary, and she was over visiting Belfast oh. about two weeks ago and listening to her talking about the phenomenology um, of illness and that sits to me very close to the phenomenology of trauma so um so I'm very interested in looking around that um so you can see I guess the overriding theme is I like to take a theoretical perspective and put it together in a bit of a mash with something very pragmatic <laughs> so um that combines my perspectives really that's fascinating and I can totally tell that that lights you up that yeah. is your passion and you just you just light up your eyes just light up that's so nice to hear and you're right i i think we have a big gap in medical education so good luck to you on that endeavor and i look forward to hear more about it for sure thank you so we're about to wrap up and i have just a couple of very simple questions for you you were talking about that you you took a holiday and i was thinking about the idea of the decompressing when you have a lot of work and we're about to get into the summer how do you usually decompress when you feel, okay, I'm getting to the point in which I need a break? What do you do? Oh, oh well, um, I live beside the sea. So small oh. advantage of living on a tiny little island. Um, so you can get to the sea very easily. So I like to walk beside the sea, particularly in the winter when it's really bleak and windy and there's nobody else there. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I'm also a gardener, which is really boring, I know, but, <laughs> but um, I like to grow things. And I think that that closeness to the earth is a kind of a, a mindfulness or like an active meditation in some ways, because um, meditating, I'm very, very poor at. I can't get my brain to sit still long enough, but um, getting into a kind of a flow state with the garden, I'm happy to settle for that. <laughs> wow. It's like Jerry, you shared the, the hobby with him as well. Did you a little bit, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has an allotment, I believe. Yep. <laughs> and do you do you exchange stuff with each other? Do you teach each other? Yeah, uh, a little bit. I don't see him as much at the minute, but yeah, um, when I do see him, I'm seeing him tomorrow. Actually, I'll I'll make sure that we do talk about that. Actually, and I'll ask how his vegetables are going. <laughs> yeah, I've been following his photos in in Twitter, and he grows a few things. So it's nice. <laughs> He, he definitely does. I'll have to get some some photos of my flowers up there as well, actually. 
<laughs> and I'll tag you. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so what's in your bucket list for this year? What is something that you are hoping to accomplish personally in your personal life more than your academic life? Yeah, in my personal life, um, well, I think one thing was getting off the small island (laughs) (laughs) because they hadn't been off the island since November 2019. so, and as much as I, I love home, do you know, I also love to travel. So that was accomplished last week because we made it to France. Nice. Um, and then we're expecting later in the year that my daughter's final adoption order will go through. So that's something we're greatly looking forward to. Nice. Um, and hopefully we'll have a bit of a party to celebrate if all goes to plan. So so um, those, are, those are my plans for, for this year. And I think professionally just to try and enjoy things a little bit more without all the pandemic worry on on the back of it so if i understand correctly you're welcoming a daughter no she's here she's been living here for she's been living here for four years (laughs) so um, it's been a very slow process but we're hoping the final the final hearing will come very soon so fingers crossed (laughs) that's nice how old is she She's five, so she's in um, what we call P1, so I, I don't know if you call it kindergarten or pre-K, but um, basically the first year of primary school, So and, she, and she's having a ball. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, I wish you all the best with that. I hope we get for, see photos in Twitter, maybe, about the celebration. Absolutely. No, no questions, Ira, for sure. So yeah. thank you very much for taking time to talk to me. <laughs> well, thank you for agreeing to talk to us as well. It was very enjoyable. Thank you, Jenny. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you, everyone, and we'll see you in another episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.